Now hear God's holy word as we conclude our study in the first book of Samuel. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, our hearts are full of thanks and praise and gratitude this day for all that you have given us through our Savior Jesus, your Son, our Lord. And now as we come to this passage of Scripture, which is downbeat and it is tragic and it is horrible to conceive of the loss of potential and opportunity that, that Saul squandered in his life. Lord, as we dip down into this passage, lift us back up again by the hope of redemption that comes through your Son, our Savior Jesus. So guide us through this passage today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the last act of any great adventure film, we typically get to see several storylines all weaving around each other, coming together at once. And the focus of the, of the action switches quickly from one group of heroes to the next so that we, we watch Iron Man and Thor fight space bugs. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, Luke Skywalker is fighting Darth Vader. And then, and then we qu quickly see what the hobbits are up to and hiding from the orcs. That's not a real movie, but it would be an awesome one, wouldn't it? I mean, if we had all that in one place, it's coming one of these days. We'll have all of this together. But you're quickly flashing from scene to scene as we see what our heroes are doing and as uh, the, the storytellers weave their stories in and out of each other and they inform so that what we see, this cliffhanger over here, is resolved by this action over here. And we get we get close to the big payoff as the tension mounts in all of these various threads. You, you get to keep up on what they're all doing at the same time. That's similar to what's been going on these last several chapters in 1 Samuel. We've been flashing back and forth between Saul and his tragic story and the redemption of David and God's protection of David while he's been living among the Philistines and, and basically trying to survive. Another similar experience to what we've been doing in the last few chapters is if you've ever tried to watch the Olympics, every four years or so they air the Olympics and now the way they do it, you see five minutes of this thing over here and you get to see one little thing over here and then an interview and, and a story, uh, uh, a, heart, a heartbreaking story from something and then, and then you get to see another person slide down a hill and then a commercial. So it keeps, it keeps moving and it keeps flashing. Well, in a much better way, the inspired author of, of 1 Samuel has been flashing back and forth, keeping us in touch with both Saul's action 
and David's action as we come to the end of, of Saul's story, the end of Saul's reign as king over Israel and the beginning of David's reign. So here in the last chapter, the focus shifts back to Saul after spending a couple chapters with David. Remember, let's catch up to where we, we've been. David has been off with the Philistines. David has been pursuing and he's been killing the Amalekites who had burned his city and had kidnapped all the women and children. And so while David was off taking care of that business and he, he takes the spoils of the victory of, of the Amalekites and he, he brings that back, we come back to Saul's last day of life already in progress. The last time we saw Saul, he was visiting a witch who uh, through the apparition that we presume to be Samuel, uh, it was communicated to Saul that he would die the very next day in, in battle. Um, the Philistines gathered for war, remember, that scared Saul. He goes to the witch. Remember, when the Philistines gathered for battle, David was among them. Remember, he was among those. And while the Philistines were sending David home, Saul was consulting the witch. The next day, while David is plundering the Amalekites and sending gifts to Judah, Saul himself is being plundered. While David was enjoying deliverance from the Philistines and the Amalekites, there's no deliverance from, for, for Saul. So let's catch up to what, to what I just read. The Philistines attack, the army of Israel flees, they pursue Saul and his sons. In the heat of the battle, Saul is struck by arrows. He's severely wounded and, and I, uh, Arrow injuries don't look like they do in the movies. Your, your body is a balloon, and when it gets punctured by an arrow, it's ugly. And it's not like a little red spot, you know, on a cowboy's shirt. Like, oh, I think I'll make it. You know, I was shot by an arrow five or six times, and I'll just need to make it back to town. No, uh, Saul is severely wounded. He is going to die. There is no surviving this injury. And Saul calls out to his armor bearer, and he commands his armor bearer to kill him lest the Philistines find him and abuse him and, and get the pleasure of doing with him what they will. But the armor bearer refuses to kill Saul, so Saul falls on his own sword and he dies there on the mountain with his sons. So it's both poetic and providential that at the very end of, of Saul's life, he comes in contact with the Philistines. He is attacked and destroyed by the Philistines. They were his enemy at the beginning of his reign. And even before Saul's reign, the, the Philistines were running the land. They were, they were in charge. They were the ones who captured the ark, remember. They were the ones who killed the sons of Eli. Saul was commissioned by God to be the deliverer for Israel from the Philistines. Way back in, in chapter 9, Yahweh appoints Saul. This is what God says. You are the man who will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That is Saul's job description. He is the Philistine killer. Also remember that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel at the time. He was Israel's giant who was supposed to go fight the giant of the Philistines, Goliath. God, God gave Israel their own giant, and yet he didn't go take care of Goliath, of course. And instead of conquering the Philistines, and instead of driving them out of the land, 
Here Saul dies at their hand. Here we see Saul's failure in full measure at the end of his life. He is defeated by the Philistines who he was commissioned by God and given the Holy Spirit to go destroy the Philistines. He's now destroyed at their hand. One of the most tragic bits of information here in this, in this chapter is the death of Jonathan. And, and here it comes in a very matter-of-fact kind of, kind of way. We'll get more time to reflect on Jonathan in the future when we study 2 Samuel. When David gets the news, he laments the life of, of Jonathan and the death of Jonathan. But here we just get a couple of words. We see loyal, faithful Jonathan die right alongside of his foolish father. Jonathan is loyal and faithful all the way up to the end. He was always David's friend, and at the same time, he was faithful to his father. And he dies in defense of this hopeless fiasco of a government that his father had set up. Uh, we, we see the faithfulness of, of Jonathan, a true friend to David, a loyal son to Saul, and will grieve with David uh, perhaps next year sometime when we get into 2 Samuel. But the account here of Saul's death reverberates with the echoes of other awful, tragic stories we've read so far. One story we're immediately reminded of is the one at the beginning of this book of 1 Samuel. We're, we're reminded of the disaster at Aphek. Remember when uh, the ark was captured by the Philistines, the, the book began with the death of a corrupt leader, Eli, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Here again at the end of the book, we have the death of another corrupt leader and his sons. Uh, there are this, this scroll of 1 Samuel is bookended by two deaths, Eli and his sons, Saul and his sons. And in both situations, we could say very honestly, the glory has departed from Israel. As, as they grieved back then with Eli's death, the glory has departed. So now the glory of the kingdom has departed once again with the death uh, of Saul. Um, Eli died by, remember, by falling off his chair when he found out that his sons had been killed and the ark had been stolen. Now, the word fall is used repeatedly in this chapter. Saul fell on his sword. The armor bearer fell on his sword. Saul and his sons, we read, lay fallen on Mount Gilboa. In the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David is going to grieve and he's going to say how the mighty have fallen. This is Saul's final fall, and it reminds us of the greater context of Eli's fall. When Eli fell, God had Samuel waiting in the wings to come rule and judge and be the prophet for Israel. Now that Saul has fallen, we know that God has David waiting in the wings to come rule and reign over Israel as their faithful king. So there's hope. Even in these comparisons, we see, oh yeah, Saul is kind of with the way of Eli. And yet we know that just as God had a solution with Eli, so has he a solution with, with Saul. Just as God, back in Eli's day, put the tabernacle to death, he buried the tabernacle and he's going to raise it back up in Solomon's day. So God now is putting the kingdom to death and he's going to bury it and let it rest there for a little while before he raises it back up with David. Saul's death also reminds us of, of someone else all the way back in the book of Judges. One of my favorite stories in, in Judges, uh, you can tell because I reference it so often. Remember Abimelech, who was the first unofficial king of Israel. Remember how Abimelech died when he attacked the inner tower of a city. A woman dropped a millstone on his head, 
crushing his skull. And Abimelech asked his armor bearer to kill him with a sword so that the word wouldn't get out that Abimelech was killed by a woman. Oh, the shame. Oh, the horror. You're dead. Why do you care about your reputation? But I don't want anybody to know that I was killed by a woman. Let it not be said. What a prideful, arrogant man that he, he doesn't mind about the reputation of killing 70 of his brothers. That's okay. I just don't want to be killed by a woman. Well, um, the, here's, here's in death, Saul is similar to uh, Abimelech. In the same way, Saul is embarrassed that he's going to die at the hand of an uncircumcised Philistine. And so that's when he says uh, to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. Uh, Saul is terrified that the Philistines are going to make sport of him. They are, they are going to um, uh, embarrass him, like maybe uh, he, he's afraid of they, they might do the same thing that they did with Samson. Remember, uh, they put out his eyes and they use him as a, as a kind of mascot. Saul thinks there's no telling what indignity they might inflict on me, so I prefer death to capture. Yet, Saul may not be, uh, of course, we've never credited Saul with thinking too clearly at any point, but here, remember, Saul spared King Agag. Remember this? Kings look out for each other. And we know Achish is already an agreeable man because we've seen Achish, king of the Philistines, talk to David. We know he's reasonable. Achish might have spared Saul. He might have, um, even, even though treating him like a trophy, he might have given him an opportunity to deliver Israel in captivity the way that Samson delivered Israel in captivity. Samson brought down the, the temple of Dagon in captivity. One last shot of redemption here, which Saul ignores and pushes away. Even the Ark of the Covenant, when it was taken into captivity, and even though it was shamed among the uh, uncircumcised Philistines, God in the Ark of the Covenant brought down the temple of Dagon. Here, Saul has the opportunity to be another Ark. He has an opportunity to be another, another Samson, and yet, cowardly, uh, he, he asks his armor bearer to thrust him through and kill him right there. He just wants to die on the battlefield. And he wants to be spared any more embarrassment. And so Saul ends his life like an Abimelech. He started his life off like a Gideon. I won't rehearse all of that, but we saw at the very beginning of his life, there were so many parallels to faithful Gideon early on. He started out like a Gideon, and now he ends like an Abimelech. Notice one more thing. There's one difference between Saul's death and Abimelech's death. Saul's armor bearer refused to kill him. When Abimelech said, thrust me through with a, with a sword so that nobody will find out that a woman killed me. Of course, it's funny now, you know, what is it, 4,000 years later, we're all, we all know a woman killed him. Um, but Abimelech says, um, thrust me through with a sword so that nobody finds this out. And his armor bearer does. His armor bearer does kill him. Here, Saul uh, says, thrust me through with a sword and his armor bearer doesn't agree to do this. He refuses to do it. This is just pathetic at this point. This is pitiful. Saul is barking out orders, but no one is listening. Saul refused to listen to the Lord. And now at his last, no one is listening to Saul. Who should have been there at Saul's right hand? If, if everything had gone the way it should have gone, 
Who was supposed to be at Saul's right hand? Who was Saul's armor bearer? Who was Saul's right-hand man? Well, it was David. David was the faithful armor bearer. In a perfect world, had Saul not been so faithless and jealous, David would have been at his right side and it would have never gotten to this point. David, of course, never failed to defend and protect Saul. David would not have harmed Saul either if Saul said, thrust me through with your sword, but it would have never gotten to this point. Uh, This is the heartbreaking scene of a man now who dies alone. He can't even get his armor bearer to listen to him in the last minutes of his life. And it just underscores the distance that Saul has put between him and everybody in, in Israel. He dies, he dies a lonely, desperate, pathetic, pitiful man because he has pushed everybody away. When God had given him a faithful servant in David who, uh, who he rejected. Now, um, there's another death. I've got, to, I've got to point this one out. There's one more death uh, that we read about that is similar to Saul's death. In the next few verses, we're about to read that the Philistines, when they find Saul's body, they cut off his head and they put his body and his armor in their temple as a trophy. Who, who does that remind us of? Well, David cut off Goliath's head and David put Goliath's sword in the tabernacle as a trophy. So here, Saul's head, we're about to read this, Saul's head is destroyed, it's removed. Saul's head is crushed. Why? Who gets their head crushed? Well, Saul has become a serpent. David is the father of the anointed one. David is is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, right? David is the one from whom the savior of the world is going to come. And Saul set his target on David to kill him. Well, what happens when you attack the faithful and you attack the seed of the faithful? Well, you've, you've become a serpent. And so what happens to serpents? They get their heads crushed. And that's what is happening with Saul here. So in his death, Saul is treated like Goliath. You live like a Philistine, you die like a Philistine. You use your spear like Goliath, you lose your head like Goliath. Now, let's read uh, about the immediate aftermath of the death of Saul, and we'll finish this chapter and the, uh, the, the whole first scroll of 1 Samuel. Let's pick up with verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and buried them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. After Saul's army was vanquished, people from all around the southern regions of Israel, and even, even some of those from the other side of the Jordan River, they start abandoning their cities to the Philistines. 
if there were Philistines living in the countryside around these towns, they would have been emboldened by this victory and take it out on the Israelites, attacking and plundering and, and, and kidnapping whatever they could. And, and so this has sent Israel into this panic and everybody leaves in a hurry. Everybody, all the Israelites abandon their towns. They forsake their cities, which is a way of saying that they're rolling back the conquest of Canaan. They're giving up what they were given by God. After, after 40 years of Saul's reign, where are we? We're right back to where we started under the oppression of the Philistines. So all this chaos and, and pandemonium now we see as the Philistines rise up and, and Israel's grabbing whatever they can out of their houses and running to the countryside, getting out of there. The Israelites are so busy running from the Philistines that they're not able to immediately stop and tend to the bodies of their fallen soldiers. Normally, protecting the body of the king would have been a high priority, but not in this case. Saul had been cut off from his army, and he, he died alone. And when the Philistines come through the next day, picking through the, the bodies and taking whatever value that they can find from the battlefield, they happen upon Saul and his three sons. The body of Saul, the armor and weapons of Saul are all trophies that they now parade around and they display as signs of their victory and they put them in the temple of their goddess Astarte. This makes more of a, a political statement or a military statement. Uh, this, uh, I'm sorry, more than a political statement, this is a uh, theological statement that they're making here. What they're saying is the gods of Philistia have conquered the, the, the God of Israel. Saul was afraid he was going to get mocked if he was captured. But the way that this works out, actually, it's Yahweh's name that is mocked. The way that this goes down. Yahweh's name is dishonored and disgraced. For, for any of us, that should come as a greater fear and a greater distress than, than anything else. Uh, more than my name and more than my reputation, I don't want the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to be besmirched or defamed in any way. You know, we want to say, do, do what you want with me. Say what you want to about me. Give me whatever you think I deserve, but don't defame, don't bring dishonor to the name of Jesus. But the way that Saul died, it actually, in fact, brought dishonor to the name of Yahweh. The Philistines hang Saul's body exposed on the wall of the city to be devoured by birds. And to prevent any further shame, the men of Jabesh Gilead, Israelites, they undertake this risky mission to come to the Philistine city and retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons off the wall. Why would the men of Jabesh Gilead undertake such a risky mission? Why would they do that? Well, remember, back at the beginning of Saul's story, Nahash, the Ammonite, who threatened to put out the eyes of every man who just submit to me and I'll put out your eyes and, and we'll be fine and you can serve me. Uh, this big ogre came through and Saul, remember at the beginning of his story, Saul was a hero. He, in the power of the Holy Spirit, came against Nahash, the Ammonite, and defeated him and delivered the city of Jabesh Gilead. Saul began his military campaign by delivering this very city. And it ends, his life ends with the men of Jabesh Gilead delivering Saul. And you can kind of imagine what's going through these guys' heads. You know, the, the Spirit of God might have left him. Uh, maybe God is not answering Saul anymore. He died uh, uh, in, in shame. But there was a time where Saul was our deliverer. 
And there was a time where Saul was our king, and we owe him this honor. We owe him the honor of taking his body uh, down from the walls of the city and giving him a decent burial. Their method of, of dealing with the body of Saul is irregular, and the bodies of his sons, it's, it's, it's irregular. They burn the body. They bury his bones under a tamarisk tree. Now, Israel didn't normally burn bodies. There's a reference in Amos to burning bodies of people who died in a plague. And there are some certain desperate situations where you just have to dispose of diseased bodies, and that's the way you do it. But ordinarily, Israel had a very orderly way of dealing with the body of the deceased. Well, what they do, however, they don't, they don't just uh, burn them to complete ash. They, uh, because the bodies at this point have been so maimed and defiled, they, they burn the bodies down to the bones, and then they bury the bones. They do treat the bones with dignity, and they uh, bury... Saul and his sons under a tamarisk tree. Now, we've seen that before, haven't we? The last time we saw Saul under a tamarisk tree, remember, he was holding a spear in his hand, and he was complaining that everybody was conspiring with David. The place where he exercised his paranoid, self-destructive rule was the place where his body was buried. But this isn't meant to be kind of a slight to Saul Bearing a king under a tree is an honorable thing. We see rulers sitting under trees all the time because kings are supposed to be life-giving, uh, food-providing, shade-giving, healing uh, uh, sorts of entities. So a king should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. A king should be an oak of righteousness. And so it's an honor to Saul that he gets this kind of treatment and this kind of burial at the very end. It may be an undeserved honor, but to be laid to rest this way is an honor all the same. It says more about these men of Jabesh Gilead than it does about Saul in the end, but they pay him this last respect. So what do we, what do we make of this man Saul now at the end of his life? Compared to the kings you read about in First and Second Kings, Saul was a Boy Scout, right? I mean, Saul had faithful sons, and I've, I've often commented that the only man in First and Second Samuel who has faithful sons is Saul. Uh, uh, Samuel doesn't have faithful sons. Eli doesn't. Uh, David certainly doesn't. Sa Solomon doesn't. Saul is the only one who has faithful sons. Saul, as far as we can tell... Saul didn't multiply wives. He only had three sons and a daughter that we read about, right? Uh, two daughters. He had two daughters and three sons. Um, that, you know, when you read about a man who has like 70 kids, you know he's probably got more than one wife, right? You, you can probably tell <laughs> maybe two or three, right? Saul has five kids. Saul doesn't multiply wives. Saul lives a relatively modest life. But even with all of that, I can't say with any confidence that King Saul is with the Lord right now. We don't see any evidence of repentance in his life. All we see is this continual spiral down into sin. And a man who starts willfully running away from God and he doesn't stop. Who wanted really, really, really badly to be outside of the covenant. He wanted to be outside of the faithful people of God. He'd been given untold opportunities and blessings and all the spiritual gifts that God had given him dissolved into madness. He'd been given these incredible gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he was changed into another man. He had a new heart. 
But God would not allow him to use these gifts to oppress God's people and to disobey him. So God took these gifts from him and he sent an evil spirit, which is what Saul wanted. God didn't give Saul anything that he didn't ask for. That's exactly what he wanted. He wanted this. And so we see this warning clear as day. Never take God's good gifts for granted. Never confuse his patience with you as permissiveness for your sin. The fact that he's being merciful with you and not striking you dead when you sin, that's, that's patience. That's not permissiveness. That's not him saying, oh yeah, that's okay. I'll let you get by with this one. That's fine. You don't have to repent. You don't have to confess. You don't have to make it right. Just, just go on your way. That's, that's, not, that's not what the Lord is doing. He's being patient, but he's not being permissive. Don't ever take his mercy as tolerance. Don't think that he's simply allowing you to get away from something. And if, if we do confuse these things, then we end up like Saul. We run from him like Saul and we will die like Saul did. So far outside of the covenant and the promise of eternal life. This is a sad chapter. And yet it's not without this tenderness and comfort and hope at the end. Here at the end of 1 Samuel, there's darkness all around, but not even this darkness is outside of God's purpose. God said this is what's going to happen. God promised this would happen to Saul, and God's word came true. God's word, his promise is fulfilled. And so if God kept his word this way with Saul, you know that he's going to keep his word and his promises regarding David. And so even though it looks like we're in a deeper mess than we've been in for a very long time, we know that redemption and deliverance and salvation is coming through David. The leadership is annihilated. The territory is evacuated. Some Israelites got away. Some were killed. Israel is scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And as we've studied 1 Samuel these last several weeks, we've seen how the narrative just gives us one disappointment after another, from the judgment of the ungodly priests to the rejection of the prophet Samuel to the disintegration of the house of Saul. Here is the kingdom of God enduring one failure after another another. But God has chosen a shepherd for these scattered sheep. And what we see as a failure is the way that God has ordained to bring Israel a king after his own heart. This is how God moves history forward. He takes things apart and he puts them back together in new ways. This is how, this is how God delivers and redeems and shapes and moves history. He puts old worlds to death and he creates new worlds. If, if you don't like new things, and if you don't like new worlds, you're going to left behind, be, you're going to get left behind quickly because God is always doing this. He's always tearing things apart, breaking them down and making new things out of the pieces. He started creation that way, didn't he? He uh, separated the light from the darkness and he made a new thing he called day, the evening and the morning with the first day. He separated the land from the water and he created the earth. And then he separated, he broke apart man from the dust of the earth and he called him Adam, but he wasn't done. He takes Adam and he breaks him apart and, and he creates Eve and he makes a new thing called a marriage. And then, and then he rips Eve in half and, and gives them a son and he's made a new thing called a family. And then many years later, he rips Noah out of his comfortable world and he floods the earth and, and he makes a new creation on the other side of the flood. 
And then he calls Abraham away from his people. And he creates a new covenant family with Abraham. And he says, here's your land. Oh, wait, not just yet. And he takes Abraham from that new land, 70 uh, people, a family. He sends down to Egypt. And he buries them there. And then when, he's, when it's time, he pulls them out of there, a mighty nation. God does this over and over and over. He uh, breaks things apart. He takes them apart and he puts them back together in new ways. In this book of Samuel, we've seen so far how God tore his house apart. He told Moses to build him a tabernacle. And there it is at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And then what happens very quickly? He takes the ark and he puts it over here. The altar goes over here. The priest and the ephod go over here. He rips it apart. The tabernacle's dead. God has no house. And Solomon is going to come along and he's going to put it all back together again in a much bigger and more glorious way than it had ever been seen before. And now, at the end of 1 Samuel, God has ripped the kingdom apart. He's just taken it like a two-year-old with a, with, a, with a phone book. You know, he's just taken it and... Do you remember phone books? I'm trying to think of an illustration. With a, with a precious book that you left on the, uh, uh, the table. Just, just tearing it apart. God, God has ripped apart the temple and he's miraculous, I mean, the, the kingdom, and he's miraculously going to put it back together. By the way, that's what God does with you and me every single Lord's Day in worship. We are living sacrifices that today, this very moment, he is arranging us on the altar. He has cut us up, and he's going to put us back together again, and we are going to walk out these doors as something new. And, and, and in a few minutes at the Lord's table, we're going to take bread and we're going to tear it into all these little pieces and we're all going to eat it. And what's he going to make? A new loaf, one loaf. Uh, see, this is how he works. God is always doing this. So not only is this going on in worship, not only is it going on in history, but if I may be so bold, that's what's going on right now in our life in this congregation. T today's not only the last chapter of 1 Samuel, it's the last chapter of our history at 221 Commonwealth Court, Cary, North Carolina. This is the last chapter of our history here in this place, worshiping here. And I'm so thankful for the ways that we've been able to minister together and live together and grow together. How many babies have we baptized right down here? How many times have we celebrated at the Lord's table right over here? How many Christmas trees have gone up and come down and our children have decorated over there? How many, how many stories have we told and how many friendships have we made uh, spreading tables out over here or tables on the parking lot, singing and dancing and making merry and enjoying our lives together here? Well, you know what? That's over. <laughs> the Lord's taken this apart. He's, he's breaking this all down. And we're going to resurrect, we're going to be resurrected next Lord's Day at the school auditorium. There are dynamics that are going to change. There are things we're going to have to do differently for a while. There may be things we have to do without for a while. There may be new opportunities, but this transition isn't some big tragedy. It's not some big surprise. It shouldn't be. We should see this and say, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen this before. This is how God works. This is what he does. He tears things apart and he puts them back together in new ways. This is how we get to that goal of having our own home out on Lake Wheeler if the Lord continues to bless. That this, is how, this is how it happens. But the thing is, you always have to be willing to be broken up. You have to be willing to be taken apart 
and be put back together. You have to be willing to let old chapters finish and let new chapters begin. You must be good at letting go of old worlds. That was Saul's failure. Saul's failure was he would never allow himself to be broken. Even in death, he is afraid of being ashamed and abused and mocked by the Philistines. His own reputation is what's on his mind. The reputation that he's been dragging through the mud for 40 years. Now he's concerned about his reputation. He refuses to be broken down. He will not submit. He will not be humbled. Over and over and over again, Saul was called to repentance, and he never allows himself to be humbled. He never allows his life to be reordered by God's Holy Spirit, ripped apart and put back together. He just hardens his heart and hardens his heart, and his heart becomes like a rock that can't be torn up. It can't be broken. He's calcified. He is, he is calloused. And Saul's tragic end shows us that you're going to be cut up one way or another. You either let this sword do it or you let the sword of judgment cut you up. One way or the other, you're going to be cut up. Either by the sword of, of the word or the sword of judgment. Saul said, you know what, I'll take the sword of judgment. And that's what happens. Saul is literally cut up and dies in, in shame and infamy. But we are called to submit ourselves to the sword that proceeds from the mouth of the mighty conqueror who sits on the white horse. You know, in Revelation 19, the sword pr proceeds from his mouth. That's his word. The, the mighty conqueror who sits on the white horse and rules the whole earth, his people are cut up by this sword and put back together in new ways. And we rejoice now that even as I say that, the Lord is doing that with us. So let us pray. Father, we welcome and invite your spirit to penetrate our hearts, to break us down, to remove whatever is unhelpful, whatever is unholy, whatever is in rebellion against you, your word, your Holy Spirit. And we eagerly await uh, the resurrection and the new life that you give us when you put us back together and reform us and strengthen us. So we give you thanks and we give you praise for this process. May we never resist it. May we never resist the work of your Holy Spirit in us this way. And Father, uh, we ask you now to guide us this week in, uh, in uh, following your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.